As I was preparing my sermon, I was confident this weekend when I started doubting, right? I started wondering, is the content good enough? Do, do the ideas flow as well as they should? But as we were just singing right now, I truly feel that the Spirit has empowered me. And so I urge every single one of you in here to listen because I don't think that it's my words. I truly believe the Spirit of God is about to speak to you. And so whether you're here or whether you're listening to this podcast at a future date, listen, because I think the Spirit of God wants to speak to you. My hope this morning is that everyone will sing our psalm in their own hearts as they walk out of here. That you all will be able to echo the praises and the truth that's found in this psalm as you leave this building and that it will resound in the middle of your heart as you go throughout your week. We're closing out our second summer spent in the psalms and so it seems fitting that the way we end our summer in the book of praises is to respond by praising God. And so I want every single one of you to join the author of this psalm, Psalm 46, in these praises. And it's my aim to show you why you can do that. So we're going to read the psalm, but before we read the psalm, we're, we're going to learn a little bit of background information about who actually wrote it, okay? This psalm wasn't written by David. Most of them are. This one is not. This psalm is written by a group of people called the Sons of Korah. It's probably a group of people that you've never heard before. I have never heard about it before this week. Um, but here, the story goes like this. Korah was a part of the tribe of Levi, which was one of the tribes of Israel in the Old Testament times, in the, in the time of the Exodus, right? So Moses had led them into the wilderness, out of Egypt, out of captivity, and he has all these Israelites with him, and one of the tribes that are a part of Israel is the tribe of Levi, and this is where Korah came from. This is the family that he was a part of. Now, the tribe of Levi had a pretty cool position in the community of the Israelites and Moses, they were the gatekeepers of the tabernacle, okay? So they would stand guard around this tent of worship that they would set up and worship in and then take down and move wherever they moved to a new location and they set up the tabernacle. That's, there was this mobile temple, you could say. And the tribe of Levi were the gatekeepers. They were responsible for keeping unholy people out of this holy place because this place was a really special place for the presence of God. And so um, it wasn't only to protect the holiness of what was inside, it was honestly to protect the people outside too because if you are unholy and you entered in, like it had something called the Ark of the Covenant where if you weren't worthy to touch it, if God has not appointed you to touch this, it was so holy you would die. And so it was to protect them, it was to protect the holiness of what was inside the tabernacle, and, and that was their role. But one day, Korah, uh, one of these gatekeepers, and some of his relatives from the tribe of Levi, they confronted Moses in a rebellion. They blamed him for leading them into the wilderness and not delivering them to the promised land. They blamed him for leading them astray, for taking us out here just to die. We were better in Egypt, right? They would blame him also for making himself a prince over them. And so they thought that he was trying to play the holier-than-thou card, right? So Moses is this holy guy and everyone else is not. And they blamed him for that, claiming that everyone else was just as holy as Moses. And so why should he have this special privilege? Um, 
And Moses, he's just like, I'm just doing what God's telling me to do. Like, I don't know what you want me to say. And so he asked them to, like, this incense contest, right? He's like, I want you and everyone who's part of this, everyone who feels this way, to wake up tomorrow and in the morning take out your censers, put your incense on it, and then light it and pray to the Lord. And I'll do the same. And we're going to see who the Lord is with. We're going to see who is actually listening to the voice of the Lord. And so they did that. The, the tribe of Levi, the Korah, and his relatives, they all lit their incense. And as they were doing this, God spoke to Moses and he said, Separate yourselves from them that I may consume them in a moment. And tell the rest of the people to do the same. And so Moses is going around telling everyone, look, something really bad is about to happen. Get away from their camp, right? And so Moses goes back to the, the people, this rebellion, and he's like, look, if you guys just die a normal death, then you will know that the Lord was not with me. However, if you guys die a special death, if the Lord makes something new, some spectacular thing to exercise his judgment on you, then you will know that you were against the Lord and I have been listening to the Lord. And as soon as he says this, as soon as he finishes saying this, the earth literally splits apart and swallows up the entire families of the rebellion. Every single one of them just falls into the middle of the earth. Except the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah, for some reason, were spared. They were part of this rebellion, but they were spared. God saved them. He did not kill them. And later on, you see that the sons of Korah not only lived, they were reappointed back to their positions as gatekeepers of the tabernacle. And so he completely redeemed them back to their privileged position in the community. And then even further down the story, yeah, generations down the road, this family is still alive. These people have been promoted to leaders of song and worship in the temple that David was a part of, in David's tabernacle and Solomon's temple. They were leaders of worship. And so these people that were part of this rebellion to Moses nearly died, fell into the earth, saved by God, and then God lifted them up to be leaders of song and worship. And it is those people who wrote this psalm. And so you'll see mentions like, though the earth gives way, or the earth melts. Like, that's not just a really awesome metaphor. It's a metaphor for you and me, but for them, they're remembering a time when their ancestors literally fell into the earth. So with that history in mind, let's read Psalm 46. I apologize, I forgot to put it in the PowerPoint. So look on a Bible with your neighbor. We're going old school, pre-information age. Um, so Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. 
Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. That kind of gives that psalm a whole new dynamic once you know who wrote it and where they're coming from when they wrote it. You see, this group of people, the sons of Korah, they found God to be a fortress and a shelter which inspired the writing of this psalm. But how did they do that? How did they find him to be a shelter? Well, their history, their story led them to that truth. You see, they remembered a time when God's wrath was displayed. And they learned this very, very essential reality about God. That there is nothing more frightening than God. There is absolutely nothing that is scarier than the God of Israel than the God of the Bible, than the God that you and I worship here this morning. They remembered when the ground gave way beneath them at the mere will of God. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. There's nothing scarier than the being who has that power. And then they learned that God chose to save them. And so once he saved them in this divine act of grace, the one who poured out his wrath on their family joined their side, they simply realized that there's no cause to fear. The storm that was blowing on them, the one that was endangering their lives, who had this threat of danger to them, suddenly became their shelter. And that's their story. That's how they found God to be a fortress. Because they realized that there's nothing scarier. There's nothing more powerful than God. And if God chose to be on our side, then what have we to fear? So if we're going to sing this psalm in our hearts on our way out of here, if we have the position to sing these truths, we need to ask ourselves, what is our story? And does it lead us to the same state of being that the sons of Korah experienced when they wrote this? If you're about to clock out, the short answer is yes. We, we do have a story that leads us to that reality, okay? But if you're going to listen a little bit longer, then here's my explanation. Our story is remarkably similar to that of the sons of Korah. You see, we sinned against God, yet he saved us. That is a profound truth. And the reason that's so profound, let's begin to unpack this a little bit, is because we can ask, what did God save us from? A common answer to this question is destruction, sin, death, hell. God saved us from all these things. But ultimately, what God saved us from, what God saved you and me from, was himself. Right? If he is the only one with the power to destroy us in that fashion, if he's the only one that has the gate of hell under his control, that has the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and he alone decides who goes where, and he saved us from hell, then he saved us from his own judgment, his own power. God saved us from himself. 
Now, to really understand this in a way that does not minimize the loving nature of God, because I know the wrath of God is a pretty touchy subject to a lot of people who don't understand it, we have to look at our own sin and realize that our sin against God was infinite. Now, you might challenge me, say, well, actually, you can actually count the number of sins I've done. It might be a really big number, but you can count it. And so once you reach the end, you can no longer say that my sin is infinite. But I'm not talking about the number of times you sin. I'm talking about the degree to which your sin makes you guilty. And to understand that, we need to look at the character of God. Have you ever noticed that we can only really describe God by what he's not? He's infinite. He's not finite. Incomprehensible, inscrutable, all of these in words that tell us what God is not. Therefore, if we take all of these other possibilities out of the range of thought, then we narrow down to who God is. That's the only way we can really understand God, and that's hardly considered understanding. But what of his qualities like goodness or justice or love? We know those things about him. But do we? You see, a mother who kisses her newborn is loving. Yet, surely we're not equating the love of this mother towards her child to the love of God towards humanity. Surely they're not a one-to-one ratio equal amount of love, right? A judge who sets an innocent man free is just, but surely it's not the same thing that we talk about when we say God is just. It's similar but not the exact same thing. Jason's deli is good, but surely we're not equating the goodness of God to the taste of my original portion of chicken alfredo. Right? Amen? (laughs) You see, God has all these qualities. He has all these qualities magnified to their perfection, reaching a reality that is no longer fully understandable, fully able to be grasped, by our minds. No matter how much you think about the love of God, you have to consider that it's infinite. It's not finite. Therefore, you will never fully understand the totality of the love of God. And so no true understanding has been reached. So what does that mean of our sin? Jonathan Edwards was a preacher in one of the first great awakening, right? And He he says it this way. He says, Our obligation to love, honor, and obey any being is in proportion to his loveliness, honorableness, and authority. But God is a being infinitely lovely because he has infinite excellency and beauty. So sin against God, being a violation of infinite obligations, must be a crime infinitely heinous. See, our tendency to view our sin as not that serious stems from our inability to fully grasp the glory of God. If we could see all of God's glory at once, the very thought of doing anything against his nature would compel us to kill ourselves. Because we would know that it's unthinkable. Our sin was truly infinite. And God's justice, his perfect justice, requires him to do something about that, right? You see, if a guilty man who's obviously guilty goes to the courthouse and and pleads his case, says, oh, I'm innocent, 
you would require the just judge to send him to jail anyway, right? Because that's justice. God has perfect justice, so it would require that he gives us our punishment, right? But God is also infinitely loving. You see, though he is just, and it requires him to do something about our sin, do something about our crime, his infinite love for us leads him to find another alternative. And this is where Jesus Christ comes in. You see, the story of Christ is the story of how God in his wisdom found another way. He still dealt out the entirety of the punishment of our sin on Christ. That way you and I can receive Christ's righteousness and live. John Piper says that the death of Christ is the wisdom of God by which the love of God saves sinners from the wrath of God, all while upholding and demonstrating the righteousness of God in Christ. Let me read that one more time because I know it's a mouthful. The death of Christ is the wisdom of God by which the love of God saves sinners from the wrath of God, all while upholding and demonstrating the righteousness of God in Christ. Thus the judge becomes our defense, saving us and satisfying justice in the process. That's an amazing thing. No engineer could possibly have thought of that solution to satisfy all of God's moral excellency and yet find a way for us to live. Not even Justin Fleming, the best engineer I know. He could not have thought of that. Sorry, Justin. (laughs) So what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? Therefore, there is no reason to fear any longer. We can now sing these same truths that the sons of Korah sing in Psalm 46 because we have been saved much like the sons of Korah had been. When it talks about how the nations rage and the kingdoms totter and all of these things happening, bows breaking, spears shattering, chariots burning in fire, we can say, therefore, we will not fear. Why? Because the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Uh, In verse 1, it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. That word um, literally means in the Hebrew, it's a derivation of the word found, to find. Okay, and so a very well-found help. And what they're trying to get across is that He's found often. He is very found. He has proven himself to be there because we have often found him in our troubles. Some of you might have like a, a footnote on that and that says, or well-proven, to substitute there. A very present or well-proven help. And the reason the sons of Korah are able to rely on that help and consider it present is because they have so often seen him present in the past. And so they're relying on his own demonstration of faithfulness. And that's where they get their confidence in God, in God's own righteousness. So we can be still 
in the midst of extreme turmoil, knowing that he is God and we are not, that he's already saved us from himself, therefore there is no reason to fear. God is for us. Nothing can stand against us. So what does that look like now, today, in your lives, as you go into the world? What are some of the problems in our world? There's human trafficking. That's a really big problem. The Supreme Court's passing laws left and right that go contrary to the moral excellence of our God. ISIS is still at large executing Christians daily. And those are just some of the things. Just look at all the common problems between people that don't get news media coverage. It doesn't take long when you're looking at the world to reach the conclusion that the world is broken and in a state of unrest, in the middle of turmoil. The mountains aren't being lifted up and moved into the heart of the sea, but pretty close, right? These are the storms raging around us. Christian and non-Christian alike have to face these realities. But will we display evidence of God's glory in them, or will we fear along with the rest of the world? If our constitution crumbled, became nothing, would you fear? If John ended up in jail by some weird circumstance, separation of church and state goes out the window, and now he's going against the government's policies, and he ends up in jail, would you fear? If Donald Trump were elected as the president of the United States, would you fear? Some of you are saying too far. Okay, there's a limit, right? But would you, honestly, if Donald Trump were the president, would you fear? The government is not our fortress. Let me just say that. Politics are not our fortress. The police force is not our fortress. The military is not our fortress. You will not find a true fortress in the world because God is our only fortress. He's the only place we can go to and truly receive protection, truly receive help. No other place here will do it. So God is on your side. Then what could possibly happen? You lose your job, lose your livelihood, lose your reputation? By pointing to the words of the Apostle Paul. But whatever gain I had, I considered as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Okay, so what if every single one of us then was thrown in jail because of our faith? It's not just John. Now all of us are there together having a white oak party in our jail cells. What if that happened? We all lose our freedom. Again, Paul says, Pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Okay, what about death? We could all die for our faith. People are dying every day for their faith. What if that's us? Well, I ask you, do you think those Christians across the world, under the persecution of hostile enemies of our faith, 
are doubting the sovereignty or goodness of God when their enemies swing the axe to cut their head off? I don't think so. I think to be in that position, you've already proven that you don't doubt God. So why should we not fear then if our enemies can kill us? And one more time, the Apostle Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul's literally saying, I can't tell whether I want to live more or die more. That's probably what the message says. I can't tell what I would rather do, continue living or to die. And why? Why does he ask himself this question? Why is that even an issue? Of course we want to live. But what does death mean? Death means eternal unity with God in the fullness of his glory. And what could be better than that? When the worst thing that can happen to us becomes the best thing that can happen to us, what reason is there to fear? This doesn't make any sense to someone who doesn't know God. But it is for that reason that we have an opportunity to display the glory of God in our fearlessness, White Oak. You see, the world will rage around us. The world will absolutely throw things our way to try and get us to cry out, to try and get us to crumble, to fall. They will scream at us, why won't you tremble? But our answer will be because the Lord of hosts is with us and the God of Jacob is our fortress. They will scream, why are you so still in the midst of your troubles? And our answer is because we know who God is. Therefore, White Oak, be still and know that he is God. You see, we hear this so often. Be still and know that I am God. That's one of the most known phrases from the Psalms ever, other than Psalm 23. You've all heard it before. But I think a lot of times we think, okay, we have to be still, be still, be still. And we forget to know that he is God. And so we wonder, why can't I be still? I have to remind myself this every day. It's because you forgot who God is. Be still and know who is God. That statement, that command has power behind it. You see, what do you think the world will say when all of this happens? If America were ever to reach a state that John was talking about, how the nations rage, the kingdoms tottering, If America ever were to enter into the state of unrest where Christianity was threatened by its life and we didn't fear and we weren't worried, what do you think they would say? They would be so confused they would convert to Christianity just to find out what you're about. Imagine that, our seats being filled just with people who are confused and want to know why we are not afraid. They want to know Who is your protection? Where are you running to for help? Why have you reason to hope in the middle of everything that's going on? To wrap up, the argument is very, very simple. 
There's nothing more frightening than God. God has already chosen to save us. Therefore, we will not fear. We have no reason to fear. So be still and know who God is. If you believe in Christ this morning, then this psalm is for you to sing. This is your psalm. This is literally your history. This should be your response. This is your psalm, White Oak. So sing it with me as we leave here. Sing it with me in the days to come. In all of the trials that may come, join us in singing this psalm. And let the power of God be displayed through it. Remember this psalm. Sing it in your heart along with the sons of Korah. And let the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guide you to stillness in the midst of your calamity. Pray with me. Father, we know who you are. Even if we can't understand you, even if we can't capture the fullness of your glory in our human minds, we know you because you have revealed yourself to us in the person of Christ. When you were nailed to the cross along with all of our sins, you showed us who you were. You showed us your love. You showed us your justice. You showed us your goodness and your sovereignty. Father, our hope rests in that. Father, we have no reason to fear because of that. We have no reason to fear because for some reason, by a divine act of grace, you have chosen to save us in the middle of our greatest distress. When we were in eternal trouble, you picked us up and delivered us from it. So God, help us to leave this place. Help us to sing this psalm in our hearts and display your glory in our fearlessness, in our faith that literally does not tremble in the slightest when the world rages around us. Because we know we could be in the middle of the most peaceful setting we could possibly imagine, yet if you are against us, then we have every reason to fear. But we also know that we can be in the middle of the most turmoil we could possibly imagine. We could be in the middle of a tempest raging around us, threatening our life every second that it rages, and have no reason to fear if you are for us. So Father, we submit to who you are, and we, we know you this morning. We know that you are God, therefore we will be still. And trust that you will deliver us into eternal life, into your exaltation. That your glory would echo through our tongues and through the lives that we live. Father, we love you and it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.